Hi, oh my gosh. Uh, welcome to the first episode of In the Company of Trees. My name is Tobin Mitnick, and I am a Jew who loves trees. I am sure that we will get into that at some point. But, but okay, let's, let's address the elephant in the room. Why am I making a podcast right now? Why am I making my tree podcast right now after three years of making content and the fact that there is so much good stuff already out there? There is Completely Arbitrary, a podcast about trees and other related topics hosted by Alex Croson and Casey Clapp. Uh, my lovers and friends. There is Ologies, classic Ologies, hosted by the inimitable Ali Ward, which explores the depths of scientific knowledge through exploring different people's Ologies, amazing stuff. And of course, Radiolab, right? There's Radiolab. They're incredible at finding those intersections between humanity and science and your past and your present, all coming to bite you in the ass, you know, stuff like that. Well, what I would say is that right now, I am excited to start a podcast about trees because I love trees and I can't, I cannot be contained to 60 second videos anymore. I will not do it. Um, you can't make me, I will still make them on the side, of course, but you need my unfeathered thoughts about this topic because, um, let's see about six months ago, I published a book. This is a shameless plug, published a book called must love trees an unconventional guide. And this book was an attempt to highlight my experiences with trees. And most of what I wrote in that book was largely out of step with what you may expect to find in a textbook, namely simple facts presented dryly. What I tried to convey in that book was that there are a host of other experiences of trees in the natural world available to us, right? There are opinions and fancies and humor and tangents and dramatizations and anthropomorphoses and personal reflections. And all of these things are not, they do not stand in opposition to science. They act as a complement to science. And those are the experiences that I want to get at in, in the company of trees. And that's, that's what I want to talk with some amazing people about. So there will still be a lot of tree talk on this podcast, but it'll be more like the water that we swim in or the air that we breathe. You know, it's going to be omnipresent, but perhaps not always explicitly stated. What I want to do is I want to go beyond the superlative tree facts. You know, Hyperion is 379 feet tall, Methuselah is 4,854 years old, you know, that kind of stuff. I want to know what those facts and those experiences of being in the presence of nature for me, that's obviously being in the company of trees, but other people as well in what their experiences are. I want to know what that does to us. I want to know how we take that home with us. Um, and for me, that manifests itself in a lot of weird ways because I often have my most profound experiences with nature when I'm not even in it, when I'm laying in bed and I'm reading a book, when I'm driving my car and I have some weird fucking insight about death because I was hanging out in the bristle cones the other day and there were tiny little 75-year-old trees. You know, those are actually pretty young, um, relatively speaking, with bristle cone pines because they can grow up to 5,000 years old. Like I just said, Methuselah, 4,854 years old. Or, you know, like I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm putting my daughter to bed and she looks at me and she goes, like, I love trees because you love trees. And I'm like, oh, my God. It's actually – it doesn't matter how I feel at all. It matters much more that I keep – uh, showing people how much I love trees because, holy crap, people tend to imitate fun behaviors they see. So, you know, that's definitely how I process things. But I'm, I'm banking on the fact that it's probably you too, right? Like, for God's sakes, like, I want to know why you just chose to put your face directly into the, the cracks in that beautiful coastal redwoods, schmoopy, beautiful, fire-resistant, cozy-wozy bark. Like, why did you do that? 
And I would very much be interested in hearing that story about when you, you know, you were having that heavy petting session when you were 16 under an oak um, and then you got a terrible rash on your area from it. Like, that's a funny story to me. Or, you know, having that urge to plant that pear tree when your grandfather died because, you know, you both loved pears and like, you know, pear a la mode and stuff like that. But also knowing that pear trees are often invasive and not knowing what to do about that. What I'm trying to say is that I welcome conflict here. Anyway, hopefully by the time you're done with an episode of this show, whether it's a breakdown of This Week in Trees, or whether it's a conversation with a wild and marvelous and beautiful human being about how nature affects them, or whether it's just some weird tree shit, because I know that people want to see that, rather hear it, right? I know you want to hear about the weird tree shit. Hopefully you'll be able to see that trees and nature can touch you in ways that are funnier, weirder, ticklier, schmoopier, more meaningful, and of course, you know, boinkier than what a textbook might tell you. Because trees bring up those feelings in me, so I'd like to bring them up here with you. And finally, I will end every episode with a prayer. So here is that prayer. In the company of trees, I feel whole. In the company of trees, I feel home. With trees, I am tinglier. With trees, I am minglier. I raise my cup of water and pour it at your roots so you can drink your health all the way out through your shoots. May you grow your fill and teach me to grow mine. Thank you, trees. On the personality of trees. I like calling things on the... Okay, let's do it. So... The personalities of trees. Why Why do I choose to imbue trees with personalities? Why do I think that's fun? You know, how do I choose to anthropomorphize these trees? Why do I need to do that? Okay, let me make one thing clear. I don't need to do that. It's not necessary. If you're tuning into this podcast for necessary information, you should probably tune out of this podcast. I don't, I don't do things because I need to do them. I do things because they're fun and because they feel good. And because it makes me feel closer to nature, blah, 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 blah. But I need to emphasize something. People, human beings have been animists since the dawn of time. We love giving things souls. We'll be like, blade of grass, soul. They're like, picture frame, you got a soul. You got a soul. You got a soul. They're like, Oprah, giving out souls. It's, this is what we do. And I think we get caught up all the time giving animals that kind of anthropomorphosis because animals move around and they kind of have ready-made characteristics. They're either brutal or they're cute or they chase things or they like to be chased and they're very, very silly. I want to do this with trees. Trees are worth it. I love giving them full characters. Oh, before I go on, I want to mention unhelpful ways to give things souls, you know, unhelpful anthropomorphosis. And I think my, my, my guys over at uh, Completely Arbitrary touched on this very recently, which is the idea that there is unhelpful anthropomorphosis when you do something like you equate bark and skin, right? If you say, oh, my skin's exactly the same as that tree bark. Therefore, that bark, if I cut through the cambium, which is the growth layer of that tree, then that bark will probably be fine after a couple of days if I bandage it up. Well, in reality, you know, that um, cambium, that growth layer, may be directly feeding the branch above it. And when you cut off the phloem network to that branch, that branch may die and fall off, right? So that's an unhelpful way to anthropomorphize something because that means you actually understand the tree less. Okay, moving on. Look, folks, I find that filling out the character and the personality of something in nature is a really wonderful exercise. I did it for a hundred of the most popular trees in North America in this book I wrote, Muscle Trees and Unconventional Guide, shameless plug, because I am a total lunatic. But I also think it's really fun. 
trees demand you know them inside and out in order to give them a three-dimensional character. You know, Aaron Sorkin style. Though they probably don't talk that fast. I love that we have to try just a little bit harder for trees to mine those special qualities that we can see as human. And a lot of the times we just get stuck on the most superficial qualities of trees, right? Like take the English oak, Quercus rober, oh quirky. The English oak, people are saying, oh, it's strong and sturdy like an English oak. Like, I know that. I've heard that a million times before. But I want to know who this tree is. I don't want some one-dimensional character based on the idea that its wood is dependable. Because that's where we stop a lot of the time with that kind of initial physical appearance of a tree. Sturdy oak, dependable. Trees are more complex than that. Yes, of course, great. Let's keep the strong and sturdy when we talk about the English oak. Let's keep that wonderful quality. But let's ask some additional questions. This is an additional question I want to ask. Does this tree, Quercus rober, the English oak, the famous, famous English oak, does it have a defining physical characteristic other than its general appearance? Does it? (gasps) It does. Like all other oaks, it has a clustering of buds at the ends of its shoots, at the end of its twigs. And what does that do? Well, that gives an element of randomness to the curvature of its branches, like this way, that way. Like if you look at one of these beautiful curving oaks, like do you think that it just chooses to do that? No, it's a function of the fact that all of these buds are grouped together at the end of this twig and that the bud can go to the right. The bud can go to the left. It can go to the middle. It can go slightly north-northwest. It can go slightly south-southeast. And it's slightly random which one it chooses to take. And I kind of see that, that critical architectural feature of the oak that makes the oak what it is as a, as a kind of impulsiveness, you know, an impishness. I love that about it. Impulsiveness. Okay. So now we have a tree that's sturdy and strong, like we know it to be. Yes, yes, yes. But impulsive, a little bit impulsive, a little brash. I love that about him. Okay, cool. Almost like a, uh, a brash warrior, something that's sturdy and strong, but also impulsive, right? But also Think about the fact that there's another physical characteristic that it has that's pretty unique, which is those beautifully soft-lobed leaves, because it's a white oak. I like to think he's a brash warrior with a little bit of a sensitive side. Love that about him. So we're already thinking of the English oak as a more complex creature than we were three minutes ago. Okay, excellent. Now I want to ask another question, which is, what is the history of this tree in human society, right? Like, what is its cultural, maybe its religious reference? And oh my gosh, we have the English oak, Quercus rober, right? There are landmarks of this thing all around Great Britain. Some are upwards of a thousand years old. This thing is intertwined with, with, with British history, with English history. Charles II was rumored to hide inside this really famous tree called the Royal Oak when he was being pursued during the interregnum. I mean, really important stuff. The species itself is a national treasure, right? So now we can see that this brash yet sensitive warrior comes from we'll say, an illustrious historical family. He has an illustrious background, a historical family. Does he come from money? I don't know. Is the money still there? I'm not sure. The money might be gone. His family might have fallen from grace and he needs to reclaim it. I don't know. But anyway, he comes from an illustrious family, right? Excellent. He's really coming together now. Okay, next question. Biology of that tree, right? We already talked about the clustering of the buds, but are there any other distinctive traits and how it operates and how the biology of the tree actually works and how the tree lives its best life. And the answer with the Quercus rober, the English oak, is yes, of course. As with all oaks, it has a relationship with a gall wasp. 
Raise your hand if you love gall wasps. I'm raising my hand right now. This wasp, and every oak has one. Every oak has a specific species of wasp that corresponds with that oak. I mean, that's pretty freaking cool. Anyway, it triggers a reaction from the tree when it lays its eggs on the stem. And this creates a gall, which is a growth on the tree, a benign growth on the tree, and the, the little tiny wasps that the wasps' eggs turn into eat the stuff inside the gall, and then they hatch and they fly out. That might gross you out a little bit. I think it's pretty cool. Anyway, these galls, which usually grow mm, inch, inch and a half, they can be up to a few inches big. And some people call them gall apples because they look like delicious little apples. Actually, they look like rotten, kind of crusty apples, especially after they've been on the branch for a few seasons. And I would not recommend eating them. Not unless you like woody tannins. And I don't think a lot of you do. Anyway, after a few seasons, when they dry out, people used to take these galls. And because of their high tannic quality, they would harvest them and then they would grind them into a dust and then they would use them to create iron gall ink. And this was the predominant writing medium in Europe for like two millennia. Everything is written in iron gall ink. The Magna Carta is written in iron gall ink. Um, intellectual much English oak? I think so, right? So, so, whoa, suddenly this is a brilliant, brash, sensitive warrior type who comes from an illustrious family. Who, who, who does this sound like to you so far? To me, it kind of sounds like the Lord George Byron of trees. Really brash. You know, it's probably a good idea not to get too deep into Lord Byron's uh, romantic history. It's pretty unsettling stuff. Anyway, but like he would write you some poetry and then he would go fight in some war and then he would come back and he would write you some more poetry and then he would go fight in a war again. This is who the English oak is kind of turning into. That's great because he's like a national icon of England anyway. So thus far, he's kind of shaping up to be a Lord George Byron. By the way, if you guys want to see just a completely batshit, awesome, insane portrayal of Lord George Byron, you gotta watch the beginning of The Bride of Frankenstein, when they do that frame story that takes place in the villa that all of them are vacationing in, in like 1815, 1816, during the year with no summer that was caused by the Tambora eruption in Indonesia. Anyway, doesn't matter. The guy is wild. You got to watch him. Anyway, this guy is kind of shaping up like Lord George Byron thus far. Finally, okay, I want to talk about what this tree's role is in ecology, because we can't just look at this tree as an isolated life form. It's intertwined. It's intertwined, as the good doctor, Dr. Suzanne Simard says. It's intertwined. It's a piece of a community. What's its role in the local and the wider ecology? Well, the English oak, oh my God, he's as noble in his ecological importance as he is in his storied history, okay? This dude supports more bugs than any other English plant. He's, like, pretty important. He's kind of a big deal. He's a dependable guy. Okay, dependable. So that means that Lord Byron is out. Okay, now let's take our final stock. We have a brilliant brash sensitive warrior type with an illustrious family who is also super dependable. You know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like a pretty prototypical medieval knight. Now, you might not like knights a lot of the time. They weren't very good guys. So maybe this is a character who was a knight, but he's now a man of the people just to appease some of the labor activists in the back over there. Anyway, so the English oak, who is he? He's kind of like Robin Hood. And that's beautiful. Look at that synchronicity, okay? You couldn't have gotten any of that from just strong, that this English oak is just like Robin Hood. And that's beautiful. Robin Hood. Robin of the Hood. Robin of Loxley. I'm not sure of all the other pseudonyms that he has, but he has like a million. And what are the most familiar trees in Sherwood Forest, folks? Say it with me now. Quercus Robar. The English oak. Now, see, you couldn't have got any of that character development, that slightly off-kilter character development, from the term strong. And I believe that that is an anthropomorphosis that is worthy of the English oak. Okay, let's do one more a little faster. 
I have in my hand a beautiful pine cone. But wait, this is not a pine cone because it does not come from a pine tree. It comes from a cypress tree. This is a cone, a cypress cone from a giant sequoia, Sequoia dendron giganteum. You know the giant sequoia. You love the giant sequoia. It can't be too hard to anthropomorphize the giant sequoia, can it? Well, no, not if we know enough about the tree. Okay, let's do it. First off, I just want to tell you a little bit about this cone because I'm absolutely in love with giant sequoia cones. Giant sequoia cones are the size and density of golf balls. They are by far the densest, maybe something like the Gowan Cypress gives it a run for its money, but in terms of size and density together, I would say that they are the most practical weapons and they're haughty. They will not fail you. They will sit forever on your magical shelf, and they have on my magical shelf. The scales of a giant sequoia cone go around in a spiral. I absolutely love this cone so much. I actually have a comfort cone that sometimes I roll between my fingers when I'm thinking about something or when I need to think on the heavier aspects of life. You could squeeze it between your fingers. It'll never give. It's, it's, indes- it's nigh indestructible. Anyway, the sequoia, the giant sequoia to me, always seems like a beautiful piece of art, like a Gesamtkunstwerk, a total artwork, except obviously a person did not make it. If I would walk up to this tree, this tree is at least twice as large as I am, to quote Derek Zoolander. Now, that's a lot of where the impressions of the people who named the trees stopped as well. Because what are the famous names of these trees in Sequoia National Park and elsewhere? General Sherman. General Grant, Washington, Franklin, the presidents, the Senate, all of these names that are vaguely rulerish or kingly or something vaguely, you know, patriarchal. The names that are given to them by settler colonialists certainly reflect that, right? P.S. If you want to learn more about the history of naming giant sequoias, you have to read a book called Elder Flora. I've read this book four or five times. The thing is, is dog-eared out of its mind. It's one of my favorite books. It's by a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. His name is Jared Farmer, and you should absolutely pick up a copy of this book. I would never just out of the out of nowhere shill for something, but oh my god, this this book is amazing. It's deep in my knowledge of old trees to a an unlikely extent, I would say. Anyway, looking at the giant sequoias and just being like, "Wow, that's big and patriarchal. I'll name it a name that's big and patriarchal." That's like pretty surface level stuff. So let's go a bit deeper with our pal, the giant sequoia, because I think this tree deserves it. So first question, right? Defining physical characteristic. Where do I start with this? Obviously, it's enormous size, but in old age, it takes on a more abstract shape, starts looking like a giant piece of broccoli. Also, when it gets burned by forest fires, which is part of its ecology, it takes on these shapes called cat's faces. That's pretty cool. But the one that I want to talk about is the bark. The bark is, of course, fibrous, which makes it fire-resistant. Fire is an incredibly important part of the ecology of the giant sequoia, sequoia dendron. But I want to talk about how thick this bark is. This bark is two to three feet thick, just the bark. And because of that fibrous nature of the bark, it has these unique and beautiful acoustic properties. There is this one place, um, I believe it's called uh, the Cathedral, on, on a hike called Muir Grove. And if you stand in the middle of this ring of giant sequoias, each of which is about a thousand years old, it sounds like you're in a sound booth because they're all absorbing all of the sound of the forest around you. It is truly a holy experience. I cannot recommend it enough. Anyway, the bark is soft. The bark feels hollow. The bark 
is wonderful to hug. It's cozy. So all I can think about here is warmth. Hell yeah. Warmth. Okay, moving on to the next question. What is the history and cultural relevance of the giant sequoia? Don't insult me. We all know this. We all know that entire groves of sequoias were cut down and then the trees fell with such force that the wood exploded and it was essentially unusable. So they cut down all those trees for nothing. Anyway, incredible synecdoche for in symbol of exploitation. So that's saddening to think about. But also when I think about one of my favorite trees, perhaps my favorite tree, which is called bull tree, which is an enormous tree that stands alone in the Converse Basin Grove in the north part of Sequoia National Park. Actually, I believe it's in the, in the National Forest and the National Monument, just outside the border of the park. I think of Bull Tree as a survivor. Now, this tree might actually be surviving because they ran out of money to cut it down, something I also learned from Elder Flora. Anyway, I think of a survivor. A survivor who might not have all that much time left with, you know, the way things are going with the fires and all. So I think of a big, warm-hearted survivor. But moving on to the next question, let's think about the tree's biology, right? It's obviously a marvel of a tree, but what else does it have going for it? Oh my gosh, this cone in my hand. This cone in my hand. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Kind of, kind of flicking that cone a little bit. Do you hear how dense this thing is? Watch, this is the cone against my teeth. Ow, my teeth hurt because the wood in this cone is so dense. Also, a tree might make 30 million of these cones in a lifetime. Pretty freaking cool stuff. God, I love this cone. Anyway, the giant sequoia has this cone that is serotonous. I'm sure some of my listeners have heard this term a lot. Serotonous simply means that a tree's cone opens up to disperse its seeds sometime after the cone has reached maturity on the branch at a sometime later date. In the sequoia's case, it relies on fire to melt its resin and open up each crease of that cone to let out a seed during a fire when all the seeds can be dispersed by the fire and the wind, not the big fires that we've been seeing lately, but the medium and low-grade fires that it's supposed to be experiencing. There's actually a more specific term for this kind of serotony. It's pyrescence. Pyrescence, which sounds a little bit dirty. Um, it sounds a little bit dirty. It's not dirty, but it sounds a little bit dirty. And I think that this kind of hints at the sequoia's patience. I think this shows that the sequoia is a patient tree. It's happy with dispersing its seeds when it's the right time. So now we have a big, patient, warm-hearted survivor. And finally, and this, this might actually blow your mind, and not quite in a good way, you know, what is this tree's ecology? How does the world, how does the forest depend on the giant sequoia? Because it must, right? This tree is so huge and, and iconic and important to people that these things have got to be important to how the natural world actually works, right? Um, well, let me read you a rather sobering paragraph from that amazing book, Elder Flora. It's on page 220, if you're curious. Jared Farmer writes, Sequoia could go extinct, and the ecosystem would barely notice. Stevenson told me for shock value. He's talking about Nate Stevenson, who is a sequoia expert and an ecologist. In the functional language of ecology, sequoia dendron counts neither as a dominant species, nor a keystone species, nor an indicator species. Its total carbon storage? Negligible. The only quote-unquote ecosystem service a mature sequoia provides that other Sierra conifers cannot is nesting habitat for reintroduced condors. 
However, these rare plants provide temporal services for modern people. Visitors come here because the big old trees ground them in a world of worry and crisis, Stevenson continued. Sequoias give them peace, give them comfort, even if it's an illusion that some things may never change. Well, that's tough. You might even say it sucks. There are these huge warm... Oh, so I'm no longer reading from the book. There are these huge, warm, cozy patient survivors and their ecological importance starts and stops at literally a few neat birds. Well, I have to say that Sequoia dendron giganteum is nothing like its ecological heavyweight cousin Sequoia sempervirens, the coast redwood. Oh, I don't want to do this, but Sequoia dendron giganteum, you are forcing my hand. I am penciling in the adjective lazy. Lazy, lazy, lazy. The giant Sequoia icon is a patient, warm and cozy survivor, huge, and also a tad bit lazy. Hate mail, welcome, I understand. So I'm trying to think, who is this person in real life? And the best answer I can come up with, Dwayne the Rock Johnson. The giant sequoia is Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Now, I know what you're thinking, Dwayne doesn't seem very lazy. In fact, he seems like he may be one of the hardest working people on the planet. But what I would say to that is that he's incredible at playing slightly lazy guys. Let's talk about Maui from Moana, right? Kind of a slob. Or let's talk about the Scorpion King when he was a CGI scorpion. It looked like a pretty lazy scorpion to me. Now, I love those characters. I would love if there were some sort of Dwayne Johnson Asanson that was just him playing lazy guys. Anyway, when I look at a tree, I see so much more potential than it's sad or it's strong or it's got a lot of fruit. You know, I see a lot of things there. And I think that you can too. You just got to dig a little further into the source material about that tree. And you can find unique things that translate to the ways in which humans view each other. And ultimately, if we want to look at the world like that, I think we are going to feel a little bit closer to it. Did I get a little bit corny at the end there? I did. I apologize. But I want to thank you for listening to On the Personality of Trees, my very first segment here on In the Company of Trees. I like to keep things remarkably formal. And I hope you'll tune in soon for my next conversation with Casey Clapp. Now, I told you that I was going to end every episode with a prayer, so let's do the tree prayer. In the company of trees, I feel whole. In the company of trees, I feel home. With trees, I am tinglier. With trees, I am minglier. I raise my cup of water and pour it at your roots so you can drink your health all the way out through your shoots. May you grow your fill and teach me to grow mine. Thank you, trees. Thank you.